0: the year is 2021 as the world faces threats of both a pandemic and rampant stupidity the future of movie theaters and film itself begins to look uncertain amid the chaos two film geeks try to make sense of it all when all hope seems lost for our pair of cinephiles a beacon of light shines in the distance a trailer so beautiful so insane and so over the top that it might just be the film to pull our heroes from their malaise that film is godzilla vs Kong. Our nerdy duo sees this as a call to arms and embarks on a journey that few would dare, with one a seasoned Godzilla expert and the other an optimistic newcomer. Together, they will take the franchise head on, watching all 35 Godzilla films in a time span few mortals could manage, all leading up to the grand finale of Godzilla vs. Kong. Join them as they escape to Monster Island. Hey everyone and welcome back to the Not Buff Film Buff Podcast for another episode of our series Escape to Monster Island, a journey into all 35 films of the Godzilla franchise. I'm Wes Skinner and joining me as always is my trusty co-pilot Josh Lapierre. Morning Josh, how you doing? Morning bud. Doing well, thank you. Good to hear. I'm sure you're doing even better because we're going over your favorite era of the franchise. We are. (laughs) I love the Heisei era. Yep. So we've already covered the Showa era of the franchise, spanning all the way back from 1954 to 1975. This week we'll be discussing the Heisei era, which picked things back up in 1984 and ended in 1995. Or anyone who's listened up until this point will know that Josh is the Godzilla expert, and I'm fairly new to this franchise. So Josh, you've seen these all, but for me, this is the only era that I haven't seen a single film from, so this is pretty exciting. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Before this, this was the only one of all of them because I had seen, I've seen Shin Godzilla from the Rewa. I've seen all the American films. I had seen 1954 from the Showa era, of course. Obviously. And then uh, I saw Final Wars back in the day from the Millennium. Yep. With me, yeah. Yep. So yeah, this is the only one. So I thought that was a pretty cool tidbit and made it pretty exciting because I'm going in completely blind. So I don't even know really what the temperature was of the franchise and everything. So, and actually speaking of that, Josh, if you want to let me and the audience know kind of where Toho was at at this point, because it was quite a long hiatus, about nine years. So what, Uh, where were they and kind of where was the franchise?
1: So... After Terra and Mecha Godzilla failed at the box office, Toho put the franchise on ice. They were like, okay, let's, you know, keep some scripts coming. If we can, if we feel they're comfortable enough to make them, we'll do that. And so after a while, they couldn't get it going. And when the 30th anniversary came around for Godzilla, they're like, fuck it. Let's let's try and bring Godzilla back to his darker roots. Let's get rid of all the kid friendly stuff. Let's get him back to the, you know, nuclear metaphor that he once was. And that worked for him. I mean, they took five years between Biolante and the return, but they decided to bring Godzilla back, and each one became more and more financially successful, so they loved it. And one reason they also kept making films is a little company called TriStar had the rights to Godzilla and were planning to make an American reboot.
0: Which we will eventually talk about. Which Yeah, because, oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> That's pretty cool, because I know that this was also kind of... Between the 70s and 80s was also when they stopped really having a lot of, you know, Kurosawa was kind of in his twilight point of his career and a lot of their big sort of, I don't want to call them cash cows because there was obviously a lot more love and passion in Toho and what they put into it. But, you know, a lot of their big money makers were kind of starting to die out, you know, including Godzilla. So was Toho for these years just kind of banking off of like home releases and stuff?
1: I'm not 100% sure.
0: Because obviously they're one of Japan's major film
1: studios, so I'm not 100% sure. But I know that their special effects films were some of the fan favorites.
0: Yeah, it would be interesting to kind of dive into what went on in that period. You know, because I feel like that's probably a pretty interesting period for Toho.
1: I've been personally interested in diving into Toho films that aren't their sci-fi and special effects films. So I think that would be a fun thing to do one of these
0: days, you know, if we can track them down here in the States. Maybe a future podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Toho's B-Sides, you know? All right. So um, Josh, why don't you, because I know that this is your favorite era and another reason I was looking forward to doing this one. So two things. What about the Heisei era do you think is special to you compared to the others? And two, do you remember what your first Heisei film was and what was like your kind of experience growing up with these films?
1: So obviously, I did not necessarily like grow up with this era like I did with the Showa. The Showa ones I watched from a very young age. I got into the Heisei era when I was probably anywhere between ten and twelve, and the first one I ever saw was uh, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from '93. And of course, you know it's like the fifth one in that franchise, so I was a little lost on like, wait, why is that a mechanized King Ghidorah head? Where's the continuity? Why is this technically the third mecha godzilla yet it's called mecha godzilla 2 in the states what for me my personal love of the franchise i adore this design for godzilla cuz it stays pretty consistent between biollante and destroya help that it felt like an actual franchise now not just a whole bunch of one-offs which we'll get to in the next era and this is also the first time movies taught me that you can be sad at the end of a series or the end of a film
0: Although Sorry, we'll get I, to spoilers I, eventually. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I just had to mention that, that this is the first time it taught me that, you know, movies can make you sad.
0: Absolutely. That, and when we get to that element, that was something I was definitely surprised by and really appreciated. Yeah, yeah. so let's talk about that continuity because I thought that was interesting because obviously the Showa era for the most part is pretty much a crapshoot. I mean, aside from Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla and Terror of Mechagodzilla, most of them didn't really coincide with each other. And while some of them would pick up pieces from other ones left behind and sort of the relationships between different monsters, for the most part, it was kind of random. And I think part of that worked for Showa because any time the arrow was sort of slumping, they could completely recreate themselves. Whereas Heisei made this very determined point to kind of stick to a straightforward continuity, which I actually really appreciated. And yeah, it's all of these films, right? Go back to back to back to back.
1: Yeah, that's right, man. We get reoccurring characters throughout some of them. Obviously, not all the characters are in each film. But, you know, you'll get a couple characters in one movie. And, hey, maybe one or two movies down the line, they show back up. And it feels like an actual lived-in world that just happens to have
0: Godzilla in it. Which really helps. Yeah, there's this consciousness throughout these films and we'll get more into the specifics of it when we talk about the actual movies but there's definitely this acknowledgement that godzilla exists that humans are aware of godzilla and most of this what's cool about the era is there's this overarching theme i noticed while watching these That it's all about humans' relationship with Godzilla and how to handle him and how to handle how he reacts to them. And do we necessarily consider him evil? Aren't we the ones that created him in the first place and gave him a reason to want to destroy us? So there's some really captivating things. And then they get pretty ballsy with not being afraid to show Godzilla is pretty villainous. Like he does some pretty nasty stuff in this era, but they find a way to also make you sympathize with him which is really impressive. He's sort of a, an anti-hero at times, but he also can range from that to a villain.
1: And one thing I also want to mention is unlike Haru Nakajima's performance of Godzilla, Ken Pachiro Setsuma's performance is very subtle and more realistic, I want to say. I would
0: agree. And, no, a lot less arm flailing in this one. Yeah, and he brings
1: like this subtle nuances and stuff to Godzilla and just, You connect with him more. You can see more, you know, what Godzilla's thinking. And I like that. I like that a lot about this
0: performance. 100%. All right. So I'll save the rest of that stuff for when we get to the movies. Because there's a a lot of cool stuff to talk about of how they visualize Godzilla this time around. So another thing I want to talk about is that, obviously, this is your favorite era of the franchise. And I don't think you're the only one. I think a lot of people strongly feel that way, both with the design of Godzilla, but also with the entire continuity I wonder if it relates at all to the fact that these movies are nearly impossible to track down. This was easily the hardest to find these movies for. I remember there was a night I was kind of going through and Millennium, it was like, oh, here it is on Amazon. Here it is on this website. Ten bucks. Cool. Ten bucks here. Ten bucks there. Five bucks here. We get to Heisei and it was like, oh, you want a Blu-ray of Biolante? That's fine. $350. It's pretty insane. So Josh, do you know anything about that and why this was the one era that was kind of almost like artifacts to track down? It all boils
1: down to licensing. From Ghidorah to Destroya is all licensed by Sony. So those are the more readily available because they got the license for that when they were making the dog shit pile that is known as Godzilla 98. So they luckily have somehow retained that license all the way up until now. And so that makes those ones readily available. Then Biollante was licensed by Miramax and Lionsgate, which I don't know why the Blu-ray all of a sudden became such a hot commodity, but oh boy, that one was, thank God I bought it when it first came out. Because I've seen those prices, man. Some of them have reached upwards of 400
0: It was the only one I had to watch on DVD. Um... Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah and Godzilla vs. Mothra were tricky, but I was able to find on Voodoo they had 4K versions of them that I could download. So that was cool. I really liked that. And they looked great. But And I feel like it would probably be pretty similar to the Blu-ray experience, whereas Biolante, I couldn't even find that. So that was another tricky part of it.
1: I have never understood why Biolante because even before it came out on Blu-ray, the VHS was hard to track down. So it was just like, what the hell? So thankfully, younger me, I applaud you for buying it when you did. I'm not too sure what the whole licensing deal is with the return of Godzilla. But luckily, they just put out a new print or more prints became available. So Wes, you were able to actually get one for a reasonable price.
0: Yeah, that one was tricky at first. We thought that was going to be another... Biolante case because of course like a lot of these there's an American version of it that has different scenes plugged in and that didn't feel like the organic experience oh, yeah, no, that I wanted no. so that version I think I could have found on a stream to buy for at least rent for like four or five bucks but I didn't want to do that I wanted the original Japanese so luckily you sent me the link to that blu-ray when that popped out I grabbed it when I could that one I
1: initially got the crack uh, and release when it first dropped you know me I was like the second I saw those became available I was on it.
0: watching these now, even the ones I'm not as crazy about, I feel like it's almost a a Pokemon type obsession at this point where I feel like I need to own them all. So after watching these, and it's funny too, because the hardest ones to track down were the ones that I feel like I wanted to own the most for the most part. Yeah. So that was a little frustrating, but uh, I'm sure they'll release at some point. I'm looking forward to it. Now I'll have my eye on it so I can pull the trigger when that happens. To quote that
1: whole, going back to the Pokemon thing, I felt that way too, and that's why I still had to buy uh, the TriStar one.
0: Yep. Yep, It it bared the name, so I needed to get it. I don't know if I'm quite that level of Godzilla fan yet. I definitely am getting there, but I don't know. That'll be the true test, right? That'll be the litmus test to see if I, I am a fan enough to want to buy the 1998 TriStar Godzilla. All right. So, Josh, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to talk about these movies. Hell
1: yeah, man. I am too. Want me to get into the return of Godzilla? Go ahead. All right. When the fishing boat Yahata Maru is destroyed at sea, the sole survivor reports the culprit was none other than Godzilla. The Japanese government seeks to avoid a panic by keeping the monster's return a secret, but is forced to reveal it to the world when Godzilla sinks a Soviet nuclear submarine and escalates the Cold War tensions between America and the Russians. Both the Soviets and the Americans are eager to test their nuclear arsenal against the King of the Monsters, while the Japanese Prime Minister remains firm in his refusal to condone the use of nuclear weapons. While delegates from all three nations debate on how to proceed, Godzilla begins to make his way towards Tokyo, which is now defended by the advanced hovering warship Super X. But when Godzilla triggers a Soviet nuclear missile to accidentally launch at Tokyo, suddenly he may no longer be the biggest threat to, to the Japanese capital.
0: All right, man. What are your thoughts on this one? I have a love-hate
1: with this one. I love a lot of the, like the bureaucratic and like government angle of this film. Like The Prime Minister, played by Keiji Kobayashi, he was my favorite character of this movie. He was excellent. He brought this like subtle nuances and you could really just read the expressions on his face and kind of wish the whole movie was about his character. But one thing that held me back on it was a bit of the pacing. It had some wonky pacing issues. One thing I didn't like is the suit design. I thought it looked menacing in some shots, and then laughably goofy in others. So it was just, like, very inconsistent there. Yeah, there were some really good, like, shots. Like, I'll get into that in a little bit. But there was some of it, it was just like, ooh, ooh, no. And thankfully, like, once Biolante came out, it was a pretty consistent suit design. And I think that's another reason I don't like it, is it's so different compared to the Biolante suit. So it almost doesn't feel like it's the same continuity.
0: That's understandable.
1: But yeah, there was the special effects were upgraded. They were actually done by the guy Teruyoshi Naka. I believe that is his name. And he actually worked on about... I believe he worked on 14 of these Godzilla movies as both assistant and director of special effects.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: There's a couple shots that he did in this movie that were just, like, beautiful. That was amazing. Yeah. One of them being Godzilla's atomic breath, first use, and then the... uh, Highway exploding with all the cars on it. That was a pretty badass shot. Absolutely. So yeah, Uh, Wes, how would you feel about this one?
0: I, for about 60 or 70% of this movie, I was really, really into it. I actually, I loved it from the start. I loved the big volcanic intro, uh, both literally and just figuratively. I loved the music. I loved the boat scene at the beginning, the sort of... 80s horror David Cronenberg aesthetic when they're sort of investigating the boat and sees the corpses and the little like sea louse attacked him, which, you know, I, I think as I happen to see on the internet is infamous for one shot that doesn't look so great. But aside from that, Pretty cool, and definitely gave me like a vibe of like the '80s thing and stuff like that, which I really appreciated. And I liked this a lot up until two thirds of the way, where I feel like it just sort of screeches to a halt. I feel like the momentum they build it and build it and build it and build it till so it gets to a point where it kind of just sits there at the top. It's like a roller coaster that just stops at the top of its highest peak, and then like maybe even goes down a little bit, but kind of slower than you were expecting. And then by the time you reach the end, you're like, oh, I guess we're I guess we're here. And the very end, I thought was pretty good and kind of pulled me back into it and sort of mirrored that volcanic intro. But I think overall, this one felt just like they were biting off a little more than they could chew. They wanted to make this huge grand epic to kind of bring it back to the original. But I feel like one of the biggest problems with that is that it sort of also wanted to prioritize the special effects over the other stuff, which the original one, found its themes, and found its message first, and then put a really good destruction story on top of it, which this one, I I think, kind of flipped those priorities a little bit, and wanted a fun blockbuster while also making a pretty miserable doom and gloom dark movie, which I just think kind of meshed a little bit. And I think there were a lot of great potential for characters in here, like Again, the Prime Minister, holy shit, is he amazing. (laughs) And um, a couple of shots that we'll get into when we kind of break down the whole thing. But for the most part, yeah, I was a little frustrated with the lack of kind of, because I think this is one of the few Godzilla movies where you kind of need relatable humans because it's supposed to be about the humans suffering and you don't need it to necessarily be the most complex characters in the world, right? But you at least need kind of like, some likable archetypes, which you have again, you have remnants of here. You have a couple characters like that, but for the most part, I feel like it just felt kind of dry, aside from the big destruction moments and some of those great shots you were talking about.
1: Yeah, I gotta agree on the whole standstill part. For me, at least, it happens during the Tokyo destruction. I feel like yeah, the the Tokyo destruction had really wonky editing. Like, it'd be really, like, intense and just, like, cut and be kind of dead for a few minutes and then go back to the destruction. And then, yeah, it was just, it was very weird on how they decided to do that.
0: Yeah, it felt like you had this thing looming over the movie throughout the entire first two thirds. And a lot of it are these really, there's a lot of great kind of harbingers and foreshadowing to kind of what's to come. And a lot of it is just this characters like the prime minister sort of being torn what to do. And those were some of the most captivating scenes. And then once it gets to the big thing falling on them, it doesn't feel nearly as devastating as it should. And I think that's where this movie falls a little bit. Some of the acting was really great, but there's a lot of archetypes that we've seen done better in the franchise, I think. And that's sort of what calls attention to how weak these characters are. You know, of course there's a reporter and of course there's you know, a a politician that we focus on. And both those characters wouldn't be bad. But unfortunately, they're just not. They're the most stock versions of those characters in a movie where we needed them to to show us a little more. Good thing
1: you brought up the reporter because I almost forgot to mention this.
0: So remember back in uh, Son of Godzilla
1: when I mentioned pay attention to the name Goromaki? Yes. Yeah. Boom. That character name (laughs) returns in this one. And I was just like, huh, well, that's cool. And he was played by Ken Tanaka mm-hmm. and it's just so interesting that this is a name that will now consist you know throughout each era. I believe there's one in millennium I could be mistaken. that is cool. There was some pretty good stuff in this, like one of my favorite lines is uh from Hayashi. I believe is the character's name. This is a bastardization of the quote, but <laughs> it was man that created that monster. Mankind is the more monstrous. I believe it was uh, they were in the Editor in chief of Goromaki's news outlet that where he works. I believe yep. he's the one who says it. Can't not. Don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> it's been a few minutes since I last watched it, so I couldn't quite remember. But I feel like that was. When it was because uh, one of the elements of this movie before the Godzilla is officially announced is Goromaki is the one doing the article on Godzilla. You know, mm-hmm. he's like he's the one who helped kind of discover that Godzilla is back and he wanted to release his article. And when he finds out it's not being released, it's because the Japanese government's like, no, 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 we do not want to cause a panic. So that was one of the lines that was, I believe, spoken during that scene.
0: There was a lot of really captivating dialogue. Uh, One of my favorite quotes in the movie was, uh, when the world becomes unbalanced, natural disasters occur, and even monsters appear. We've seen this the world over in different mythologies. Godzilla is truly a sign of the end times for humanity. A lot of that sort of paints this tone of, again, like doom and gloom and darkness, and it almost feels as chilling as the original at times. And I think, again, I think if they had uh, focused a little on the finer points of certain edges of this, rather than trying to balance being a creature feature and being a human story as two separate movies, you know, which it almost feels like at times, I wish they just found a way to weave those better together. I think one of the best scenes in the entire movie is the Japanese prime minister talking to an American representative and a Russian representative and being stuck in between them having to, and they do, I, I'm not sure if this is the exact shot. I know, I know there's or the exact technique, but I know there's a technique in film called split diopter where it focuses on the foreground and the background. So both are focused on at the same time, and you usually get a little blur in the middle because of that. I am not a total film expert. I just know I've seen that shot a couple times, and that's how I've seen uh, or that's how I've heard it described. So if this is not that technique, I apologize, but it's a very similar effect. And what's cool about that is that you can see both the urgency of both the American and Russian representative in what they're trying to say and how important that is. And they're still highlighting that, that you know we must use nuclear weapons to kill Godzilla. But you also see a close-up of the dread on the prime minister's face of having to face that decision, which is great. And I think it was easily one of the most captivating scenes in the movie.
1: I am so glad you brought that up because that is my favorite scene in the entire movie. It's, I'm shocking. A human scene is my favorite scene in a Godzilla movie. Yep. But um, I actually made note of it that it looks like the, there's a shot where it's from behind the prime minister's back, and it's got the Russian on his left and the American on his right. And it's I wrote it down as it's almost like he's got two devils on his shoulders trying to like go, use the nuke, use it. And here's another bastardization of one of his quotes, but he said – Should Godzilla appear in your countries, either America or the Soviet Union, should it threaten the capitals of Washington or Moscow, would you have the courage to use a nuclear weapon?
0: Yeah. And I was just like, "Mm, so good. Yeah. And that's, again, I talked about how this movie gets ballsy at times. And that was one of those, like it being American and Russian representatives are so fitting too. Right. Because it's like, obviously they're both superpowers, but you know, America being the ones who had bombed, Japan all those years ago, uh, which was the inspiration for the original Godzilla film. But also, this is the 80s, and one of the biggest topics of the 80s was Russia, right? And you had a lot of nuclear scare back then and I think that this movie very much like the original was not afraid to sort of throw those conversations right in there. In a movie again with a rubber suit guy walking around stomping on miniature buildings, it's just so impressive that they're able to sort of pull that realism out of it. And in a way I would almost go so far as to say I think that stuff, not so much all the human stuff, but that stuff particular with the Prime Minister and is, is the the strongest stuff in the movie even more than the monster stuff. I think that stuff stuck in my head more than Godzilla stomping around and destroying buildings. And there's a bunch of little key human moments. Another thing we'll see that this era does a lot is sort of hyper focus or zoom in on these relationships between usually one character and one of the monsters. And I think usually Godzilla, of course, but, you know, we see that later with another character too. And I really appreciate that. It kind of, it's like they realize that, you know, again, it's a little hint at them sort of tying these stories together a little better, but this movie doesn't always succeed in that.
1: This one, I felt had the weakest characterization for Godzilla. Not going to lie, at least out of this era, because luckily, like I said earlier, he's played by Kenpachiro Satsuma for the entirety of the Heisei era. So that's, I love the consistency there. To me, it's weird that they uh, kind of connect him to, like, birds that migrate and everything. And it's an interesting concept that is dropped after this movie. It's is the only one that ever kind of relates him to animals and everything. I'm
0: glad you brought that up. I'd actually kind of forgotten about that element. I think, so, back to your point about Godzilla's weak characterization. I I have to say I'm okay with it being kind of broad or simple because... I feel like he was supposed to be, again, very much like the original. They're making him less of a character like he was in the end of the show era and like later in this era where he's more just a symbol, right? He's more this, this harbinger, this horseman of the apocalypse, essentially, uh, sort of just riding into Tokyo and making everyone fear for their lives. And I think, so for me, that actually really worked. I also like some of the visual symbolism of this as well. We go back to a lot of silhouettes, a lot of shadows, a lot of red skies, which I was a huge fan of, which actually reminded me most of the Batman animated series, which I wish red skies against like, or, you know, behind silhouettes of buildings and stuff like that was used more often because I just think it's a really cool visual. But I think it really works well in this movie and gives it a very distinct visual flair. Like if someone was watching this movie, I'd know immediately by that setup that it was this movie.
1: And speaking of the red sky and everything, to kind of jump a little further into the movie, after the Super X has uh, incapacitated Godzilla and that nuke goes off above Tokyo, that is one of the coolest like looking shots in the movie where the sky is kind of like lit up red as the nukes have gone off in space and it just lights up Tokyo and it just looks really cool. There's a lot of really cool visual scenes. I don't know, I just can't connect with them all the time.
0: Yeah, again, I think it's that failure to tie the human stuff with the I don't I almost can't say what exactly it is aside from the the pacing kind of dropping towards the end. I I think the biggest problem is that this movie does such a good job towards the beginning of of building things up and it makes you antsy to see Godzilla. Like you're excited to see Godzilla. And then once you see him, it's cool for five minutes. And then after that, again, we have a lot of scenes of him just kind of standing around, a lot of scenes of him. One thing we haven't gotten into yet is the introduction of the Super X, which is the sort of anti-Godzilla machinery. And again, in my statement about this era being about humanity's relationship and response to Godzilla, this is a theme we see a lot are humanity is humanity making machines to fight back against godzilla there's a lot of that in this era and i think the super x for me is one of the weaker renditions of that because it's not very distinct it's not very they don't connect you to the pilot of it in this one so you just kind of don't really care about it i didn't anyways and it also leads to me one of the biggest lulls in the movie when they use is it cadmium I believe, is that what it's called? Uh, yes. Where they use that to sort of almost freeze Godzilla or sedate him. And he ends up, there's this beautiful shot of him sort of like more or less falling asleep in a hole in a building with his head leaning into it. And it's, it's a cool shot at first, but it sits there for a very long time. And once, I think it's almost reminiscent of what happens to the movie At that point, too, is the movie itself just kind of falls asleep and forgets about the fact that there's this big monster looming right there. And I think the urgency of the film just kind of screeches to a halt. And that's kind of where I think the film lost a lot of its weight. We stopped focusing on the human reactions. We stopped focusing on the weight and the guilt of the people making decisions to affect this. And we sort of just had a bunch of shots of Godzilla laying upward (laughs) into a building. And that kind of really slowed it down for me.
1: Yeah, and I think that's another reason that kind of killed it for me as well is Godzilla doesn't really do too much in this movie. There's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of shots of him kind of just standing around. And that's one thing I will say, the American cut, Godzilla 1985, did better, was it kind of cut those down, or at least, you know, even I think got rid of some of them altogether. And that would have made the movie flow a little
0: better. Definitely. Definitely. I agree. And I will say there's a little to kind of go on a a side tangent here on related. There's a couple little moments that I actually liked, but I I didn't know 100% how I felt about them for the tone of this movie, like the homeless guy sort of running around who has a bit of a scattered relationship with Godzilla. At one point, he's in a fancy restaurant sort of which actually I think is a pretty interesting statement on class that they do there, where it's sort of this homeless person walks into this restaurant, and while everyone else is devastated and has evacuated the city and is terrified, he's kind of like, oh, this is heaven, this is paradise. And he's like, sits down, has a fine meal, and then even himself goes, wait, what am I doing? And then sort of looks over and sees Godzilla, and his exact line is, look at you walking around like you own the place, you bastard (laughs) out-of-towner. And while it's really funny, I don't know if that line, it kind of cut into any statement that that scene could have been making. And it also felt like it, again, deflated some of that tension that they had done so well to build up before.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I felt the homeless guy was definitely a little out of place at times. Because to harken back to Godzilla, King of the Monsters... It They did the same thing where they had a really good scene of tension or like something dramatic. And then they just kind of cut it with a joke. And it's just like, guys, if you didn't do that, it would have been really good.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's, again, just part of the cutting of the momentum of this film. And I, I will say that a lot of the human characters were done pretty well in the beginning, but then just sort of became, uh, which I think is a big issue in American blockbusters now, just became people running around during The destruction. And for me, that's not nearly as captivating as people who actually have stakes in the destruction and people who, which is why the Prime Minister's story is so much more interesting than anyone else's. Now, I will say that this has one of the most brilliant moments of any Godzilla film ever at the end, which when Godzilla. Actually, I'll let you get into kind of any thoughts you have leading up to that climax or the climax itself, but kind of how they take care of Godzilla, I think is actually pretty great. And then, of course, a certain moment that happens after that, I thought was pretty brilliant. But um, leading up to that point, how did you feel about how they sort of wrap up the story? And if you want to explain for the audience a little bit what goes on there.
1: All right. I'm going to circle back to the destruction of Tokyo just one last time before we get into the uh, ending. It is um, There's actually quite a few shots that are very reminiscent, I honestly feel, could be shot-for-shot shot remakes of the original. Like when Godzilla first appears in Tokyo Bay. And the fighter jets are launching their missiles. That is almost a shot for shot of the Tokyo Destruction and the original Gojira,
0: which I thought was very cool. Yeah.
1: So anyway, to jump to the end now, they have a plan to lure Godzilla to Mount Mihara. And they're doing that using the bird sounds that they discover Godzilla is attracted to, which is a random Mm. plot development. That kind
0: of goes nowhere after this like, movie. I feel like there was something there symbolically or metaphorically that I just, I couldn't quite wrap my head I mean, around. But
1: to me, they kind of, it was kind of the lead up to making Godzilla more of an animal, like they kind of depict him as later in the series. Sure. But it, like I said, it just felt weird. Absolutely. But anyway, they bring Godzilla to Mount Mihara doing, using the bird sounds and everything. And they kind of drop the poor bastard into the volcano. Which is, uh, that is one thing I do like about, I believe it's the American cut of this, Godzilla 1985. I believe they give Godzilla more of a pained roar as he falls down into the volcano, which is kind of, it's a bit depressing, not gonna
0: lie. All I'm picturing when you say that is when they added the scream in to Return of the Jedi at the end, where Darth Vader has had enough of the Emperor zapping his son and picks him up picks up the emperor and chucks him off. But, you know, the thematic implications of that just weren't enough for them. They had to add him going, no. (laughs) And so that's all in picturing when you say that, but I'm sure it was much more effective than that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: um, (laughs) Because
1: in the Japanese cut, he still roars as he he falls down into the volcano. But this one, they just added a bit more of a pained roar. And it just, it makes you (laughs) sympathize with him a little more. I, I could be speaking out my ass, but I feel like I remember
0: that. No, yeah, I, I totally believe that. And that would be cool. The best part of this is that the Prime Minister is watching all this go down through like a giant screen in his conference room or whatever. When they cut to his face, the red from the screen is reflecting on his face and he, there's this long shot just sitting on him sort of watching this moment as Godzilla dies and he just starts crying. And it's so brilliant. And so good and unexpected that I was actually really, really, I I wished, it made me so angry that the sort of late second act and early third act didn't connect as much for me because that ending is so good and feels like such a good cap off to the whole arc that resonates between this and the original, right? Is that the it's very symbolic how the nuke ends up doing more damage to Tokyo than Godzilla does at the end of the day. And for me, I felt that that was really a way for it to all kind of come full circle because that big question at the end of Gojira, while it is a complete experience in its own, right, they kind of leave off with this question of like, how far should humanity go? You know, there's going to, if there's going to be another Gojira, are we just going to make a bigger bomb? Or are we just going to cause more destruction ourselves? And this movie sort of answers that question. And I think in a way, it's a perfect companion piece for the original in that sense. And the ending sort of encapsulates that really well. And seeing that he's just devastated that this can only end with one side causing violence to the other, it's just really sad. <laughs> and that's sort of the one thing the prime minister tries to put a stop to the whole movie. And I think they do a good job of showing that it's, it's not a black or white issue, right? It's something humanity's constantly going to struggle with. And once again, it's, we're sort of going back to this franchise coming from how some of the goofy highs from the Showa era and then going back, scaling back down. So almost seamlessly to sort of asking these big questions with these films. Uh, that was really impressive. And I liked that. And I got to agree with you on that. For me,
1: my biggest takeaway now that we've watched all seven of the Heisei era, I think the overall theme is man versus nature and our relationship with nature and everything. Definitely. And that being personified through Godzilla, which I really liked.
0: Yeah. And and like I said, that whole, you know man versus Godzilla conflict and this being this ongoing thing that humanity is constantly trying to figure out a solution for, it really is kind of like the environmental issues that we struggle with. I mean, cultural too, I guess, but really just kind of any issues that humanity struggles with. It's It feels very representative of just these things that just overflow out of our hands that we can't grasp and we're just trying to put it all together so we can understand it and make it tangible, but we can't. Godzilla represents things that are out of our control, which I really like. But yeah, Josh, did you have anything else to say about this one? No, I
1: think I kind of nailed all the notes that I wanted to,
0: you know, hit up on. All right. So let's get into our next one, which I'm very excited to talk about with you. So this one is called Godzilla vs. Biollante. In the wake of Godzilla's attack on Tokyo, his cells have become a coveted scientific resource, with governments and the terrorist organization BioMajor fighting over them. Five years later, Dr. Janchiro Shirigami uses a sample of G-cells to try and preserve his deceased daughter's cells within a rose, unintentionally creating the hybrid kaiju BioLante. In addition, a botched terrorist ransoming by BioMajor results in Godzilla being released from his prison within Mount Mihara. As the JSDF prepares to fight back against Godzilla with its new array of weaponry, Godzilla converges on Biollante's location at Lake Ashi, setting up a battle in which the winner will be humanity's biggest enemy. So this was the one of these films that I had expectations going into, and I'm a person who really tries really, really hard to not let that get to me and not let that persuade my viewpoint in one way or another based on how I... I like or appreciate this film. I knew that this was the very coveted Blu-ray that was impossible to get a hold of. I knew this was a, an underrated gem for a lot of people. And I feel like sometimes that can sort of extrapolate those feelings of sort of, oh, this is actually underrated. And then it becomes hard to find. So that just kind of maximizes to create this like need to see this movie and also this need to kind of praise it. And I think people... Maybe have this. I think that set my expectations over the top a little bit subconsciously, which was really hard because I did overall like this movie, but it had some flaws that kept me held back from it a little bit. The biggest strength with this film is everything related to Biolante herself, right? Is the visuals of Biolante. This is one of the coolest creations from Toho, period. I mean, this thing is. Absolutely. Like think like Little Shop of Horrors on crack. Like this is this like insane plant monster that also has these different evolutions as it goes to it starts off as a rose and then becomes a giant rose with a ton of vines coming out of it and almost like vine limbs and then becomes towards the end where we have this giant Venus flytrap thing with teeth and various limbs and poison spores that it shoots out and all sorts of crazy stuff so visually and conceptually i thought this was really brilliant and i loved the bioengineering metaphors that they were going for with this and sort of a lot of the ethics of that sort of scientific research which i thought was really interesting the whole idea of this being a resurrection of this guy's daughter was just really a captivating and personal and weird story that I thought really worked for me it's my type of weird i love weird when it's when it has an emotional core especially i think this movie nailed that there's two big flaws for me and that's tonal inconsistencies and the complete lack again very similar to but maybe to a lesser degree, Return of Godzilla, where I feel like late second act, early third act, they just didn't know what to do. Because there's this confrontation between Godzilla and Biolante, which is awesome. biolante goes away for a while, then comes back at the end, which is awesome. But those in-between points were way less interesting for me. And it was just Godzilla versus yet another version of the Super X, which I was not a fan of. And it just felt like I'd seen all this before and the most original parts of the movie were kind of kept to a minimum, which was frustrating for me. And I wanted less of all that. But yeah, Josh, I know a little bit of how you feel about it, but I'm curious to, to see what, kind of in detail what you think.
1: Okay, a bit of spoilers, but I love this one. I figured, I figured. i um, rewatching it. I just really connected it with this one. I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden it's just like it with me and I was just like, Whoa. It was like I almost saw it through a new light, it felt like. I don't know. This is one that I never really grew up on, so this is the one I have the least emotional connection to. I never... I think I was maybe a teenager by the time I finally got to see this one. I don't know. I, I, I didn't have the childhood nostalgia like I do for one of the upcoming ones. Rewatching it, like, I love the way Godzilla was shot in this. Like, there's some scenes in his destruction of Osaka that are just beautiful. Like, like Wes was mentioning in the you know, past one with the red backgrounds and everything, with Godzilla silhouetted it to some buildings, it just looked awesome, like beautiful. Biolante, Jesus, that was such a good prop, and I really—I don't know—I I, I kind of love the corny '80s action thrown into this one, which yeah, it totally doesn't really mesh well. But to me, that kind of adds more of the charm to this one. And okay. yeah, I don't know what it was. It just—I really connected with it when I rewatched it. This
0: past go around would you say it's safe to say that this is the one that your opinion changed the most upon rewatch even including the show era
1: yes this is by far the most like i liked it you know when i first saw it but i was like yeah it's it's godzilla you know whatever you know i i love godzilla so of course i'm going to like this one but rewatching this one i was just like whoa what what you know i it just kind of it clicked with me like i said i don't know what it was but i really like this one and I will admit this is one of the ones that I had rewatched probably within a past year before doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. So it did have the you know quote unquote freshest memory for me. Yeah. I, I dug the human cast a lot. I love, like you mentioned the science versus science aspect where it's like, is it ethical to do this kind of stuff? There's a quote at the end of the movie that I actually even posted on my Facebook after rewatching it a few months <laughs> back. It's from Shiragame at the end of the movie. And he says, Godzilla and Biollante aren't monsters. The real monsters are the humans who created them. Which is kind of funny because he's reasoned Biollante's around. But, you know, hey, props for, you know, taking credit on creating something so fucked up. Cause, sure. Because Biollante is a mix of his daughter, Erica, a rose, and Godzilla's DNA. So that is, that is easily the most fucking weird creature concept we've had in the entire franchise. And that
0: concept shouldn't work at all but for but it me does. it really that was one of the things in the movie i really liked i think everything about bialante herself met the hype for me it really did and that sort of exceeded my expectations i think where it fell flat again like those tonal inconsistencies i was talking about a lot of that has to do with both the music and a couple of goofy moments that I feel like just didn't belong. There was a lot of like, I'm okay with the, in some ways it reminded me of Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, where you have this B-movie camp and pulp, But it's also combined with an emotional story and really awesome effects. So you had like all these really cool elements. And I would almost say they were blended pretty well together. But then again, there would just be these completely goofy moments that would take me out of it. There's a moment where a guy gets hit in the head at one point. I think you probably know what I'm talking about. It's probably the worst sound effect in the franchise up until this point. And I can't remember, remind me a little bit of what they were doing, but it was like they're at some like construction site or something.
1: Yeah. So what had happened was um, the Godzilla cells had been uh, taken and they were going to use those to create a thing called the anti-nuclear bacteria, which they were going to use on Godzilla to kill them and everything. And the uh, terrorist bio major people had it and they were confronting one of the agents in their, I believe it was their uh, base of operations out of Osaka something like that and uh oh, right. they uh get which character it was who uh, hit him on the head but he hits the agent on the head and it goes bonk almost like a
0: cartoony bonk and I, yeah it's like a metal basketball
1: <laughs> yeah and i i even made a note of it cuz it, it makes me giggle every it's, time i hear it
0: yeah there were moments like that uh there was another moment when they there's a montage of news clips and the news clip that they start with is this guy in like a devil costume with kiss makeup, just sort of like talking about Biollante rising. And I'm like, why is this in this film? Like, what is this? I mean, maybe if it was like the third or fourth newscaster that we had seen in this montage, it would be like, oh, wow, even the weird news is finding out about Biolante. But starting with this one just instantly makes you feel like you're in this cartoony world again. And with the sort of grounded story, you kind of need and the grounded emotional core, you kind of need to seamlessly blend those things. And moments like that were really jarring because it was just so inexplicable. Do you know what that was, that <laughs> news moment? No, but I just have a feeling it's chalked up Japan's weirdness. I mean, it's gotta just, be. They're so beautifully weird in so many ways that I love Japan <laughs> yeah. for it. But I have to know, I I guess I just I don't I don't even know if that's I like I I have to think that. Even someone who grew up in Japan would look at that and be like, Yeah, oh, that's kinda weird. You know, like I can't I can't imagine that just being a normal, seamless scene for anyone to watch. So for me, stuff like that just really pulled me out of it and and some of the music music was very hit or miss. Biolante had this really like beautiful emotional music behind her, like usually like these like slow strings which were very fitting. But then you would juxtapose that with like when the military came around, you'd have this very eighties like action movie music that just felt so jarring compared to the emotional stuff.
1: Yeah, and one thing that was weird is they also used some of Akira fukabe's music. They used yeah. like his military march and what would end up becoming Godzilla's theme in the next movie. And hearing afuka bay's music it just hit me i was like yeah because oh boy when the music first drops in this movie it's akira's music and it just it fucking slaps you in the face it, it literally made me jump because it was kind of a quiet beginning and then it's like kicks in and it's just like good lord where'd that come from but yeah the music had a very like almost 80s cheese to it at times it's like it, they almost couldn't decide whether they wanted to go full like 80s b-movie action or if they wanted to be the Full, like actual dramatics more somber music
0: yeah more a more traditional orchestral score yeah so and along the lines of the music i don't know if you noticed this or if you're familiar with it but the what i believe was the theme to the super x2 is very 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 hauntingly reminiscent of the richard Donner superman theme did you notice that I have a legit note.
1: Super X2's theme sounds like the Superman theme from John Williams. I was just like, yep. I was like, wait, why does that sound familiar? And I looked it up. I'm like, how did they get away with this? What?
0: Cause it was actually the DVD menu music. And I remember putting it on and I'm like, Oh boy, I hope this isn't what this sounds like. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, it's in the movie a couple times. And again, that was, that was just something that took me out of it. There were, there were, random moments that i feel like did work that were the right type of weird um like an introduction of a character that we will see a lot through these heisei movies is mickey, mickey Sagusa. yep so she is a psychic who they don't really bother explaining the concept of sort of this world's relationship with psychics they just kind of everyone seems to sort of accept it as normal they're like oh yeah, word, this girl's psychic
1: Yeah, that's the one thing I do have a problem with with this (laughs) franchise is like, yeah, it's really cool that they have the psychics in it, but they don't really explain, like, it's just kind of a thing.
0: Then again, if you delve too far into introductions of all this stuff to the world, it might be a little too bloated and it might take you out of it more. So I think it's certain decisions like that, I think it's okay to kind of roll with, but it was definitely something that brought me out of it at first, but then I think actually worked later on as i saw that they were continuing to kind of commit to it and i like having a character that we can check in with throughout the franchise and she doesn't really become a major character until later on which we'll get to yeah. um but by the time you get there you do actually care about her and it helps that the actress who plays her is it the same actress in everyone yeah um megumi odaka she does a she, great job
1: yeah or is it megumi i think it's megumi odaka
0: yeah, she, she does a fantastic job in this, uh, in this whole series. Yeah, I really liked her. She was one of my favorite additions.
1: And it's cool, like you said, that we get, get this. She doesn't really have a huge role until like the last three movies. Mm-hmm. But it's nice that, you know, we get to check in with her with each one. And I really like that about it. And it's another way of keeping continuity with these movies.
0: Sure. Um, back to Biolante, because again, I think she's the highlight of this movie how I was sort of talking about how in the last one, it's very Cronenbergy, like creature-wise, with like those little sea louse things. This one, even more so with the tentacles and the sort of her transformations. I don't know if it's just that I'm a Dragon Ball Z fan, but I love villains with multiple forms. <laughs> so I really liked the fact that Biolante had all these forms and then eventually there's this huge grand reveal of her final form which is one of the most successful creature designs and execution in this thing. I mean, I can't even describe it to anyone listening, so I'd just recommend looking up a picture of Biollante or watching her in motion because it's just look up a clip or something because it's absolutely just a feat of expert craftsmanship. And you could tell that they really... You know, even despite the goofy elements, they really wanted to take that aspect of it seriously, and and that really, really works. I also like how there's a lot of shots with her backlit with these like bright, almost spotlights behind her, just creating, and it's just enough of a silhouette, but we still get a lot of the vibrant greens and reds that come through with her too, which just look incredibly gorgeous. It's both terrifying and haunting and beautiful all at the same time. They do a really good job with that, and. During the fight scenes, I was nervous that she wouldn't really be very interesting during the fights because it's just like tentacles lashing around. But they do a good job at showing that this is a unique villain for Godzilla and that it's almost more like he is fighting nature himself, which he's very much a lot of times a manifestation of. So it was kind of cool seeing him not know what to do with something he can't just punch and throw the shit out of because she's more like rooted and grounded and heavy and big. So he has to kind of use a little bit of ingenuity for once. So I don't know about you, but some of the most satisfying combat stuff for me was him breathing his atomic breath at the vines and them just snapping, watching them kind of snap off and like a little bit of like spray of like her version of blood, I guess, was really fucking cool.
1: I'm glad you brought up the action because I definitely wanted to talk about this because yeah, I made so many notes of how beautiful like when you were saying when she's in the lake and everything and there's that backlit shot of her just her silhouette that was beautiful but i actually have some really interesting stuff to talk to you about on this that i've been holding off on let's do it all right so this is one of the main godzilla movies that we know have a lot of deleted scenes and this is uh, sadly for us here in the states we don't have any blu-ray or dvd releases with those on it so I've had to hunt them down on YouTube, and they're kind of infamous for Godzilla fans just because they're kind of hard to come across. But some of the shots include the JSDF sending a boat out in the lake to see if they can, you know, do something with Biolante and her vines, you know, killing the soldiers in the boat. You know, another scene that we got cut or shortened, at least for the theatrical release, was Godzilla making his way to Lake Oso. The movie it kind of just starts or that scene kind of just starts with him being there. Like they mentioned that's where he's going. And then the next scene, it cuts to him and he's already at the lake, you know, getting into it where there was a scene of him, you know, going through the forest. When he gets to the lake, he makes eye contact and stuff with Biolante and he lets out the 1954 roar. And I'm like, they should have left that in. That was, (laughs) that was cool. cool. It was like him kind of like going, yo, who the fuck are you? And why are you on my territory? Mm -hmm. Then the scene i really wish they kept in was after he defeats biolante for the first time and you know the theatrical version has a beautiful scene where you know her spores kind of go up into you know the atmosphere and that was beautiful that was really well done
0: yeah but there's like a
1: scene lot. right after that where all the plants around the lake turns into flowers and roses and everything and we almost get to see godzilla have a moment of hesitation like fuck should i have just killed her and yeah. it was, it was, I actually like,
0: noticed that too. That was cool,
1: yeah, because it was just like you get to see him kind of like looking around a little. It's like, oh god, what have I done? You know, am I really this destructive? And sadly, they cut that. And another deleted scene is like I mentioned in King Kong versus Godzilla, where that was the first time we got to see him in stop motion. This is the second time, and mm-hmm. there was a scene I could, I don't know if it was during the lake battle, if it was during the final battle, yeah, where Godzilla's purely stop motion and her vines are attacking Godzilla and I don't know if that was just a test to see if they could use that for in the movie to help demonstrate how Biolante fights and I sadly wish they had left that in because it looked really cool.
0: It sounds like a lot of these scenes were Biolante related which again is a bummer because I would have preferred all of that over all the Super X2 stuff that we get. Because again, this almost follows the same exact pattern as the other one for me, as Return of Godzilla, where I'm really invested for two-thirds of it, and then the most interesting part sits out for 20 minutes, and then we get a good climax. So we haven't talked about the human characters much. And I think that that's kind of an issue in this one because they don't really stand out so much because this is such a human story. And I kind of wish we got a little bit more from the creator of Bialante. I wish we got a little bit more of his relationship with Bialante. instead they decided to do a lot of actiony stuff on the outskirts of the story which I feel like wasn't really needed as much I would have been more invested with all of that kind of taken out and just sort of stripped down to just the Bialante story I didn't need the terrorist plot I didn't need I guess there's one side character that I did need which was I don't know if he's a colonel or a sergeant or what, but uh, Gondo, the military character. This guy is the MVP cameo character of any movie. I think he's in maybe, what, five minutes of this movie? He's not in a lot of it.
1: Uh, I want to say 10, 15 minutes at the most, but Toru Minigishi steals the scene as Goro Gondo, and we do get to see more of him or more of his family as the series goes on, which we'll get to. But he is excellent in this movie. I loved him. And his death is definitely one of the sadder, not like tear-jerking sad, but it's like, you're like, damn, I wanted to see more of him.
0: Right. And he could have gone kind of wrong like the homeless person in the movie before this. But I think he works because, again, it's that line between pulpy and too corny, you know. And I think he rides that line really well. I think having a character that kind of looks at this whole situation as very black and white, like, I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. You know, no matter how a little archetypal he is, I think it works. And I think it works to kind of show the misunderstanding of these creatures. And he's also just very entertaining and likable. One of the best lines is, while holding his bazooka, tips his helmet and looks Godzilla right in the eyes and says, medicine is best taken orally. Hello, Mr. Godzilla and that that kind of says it all about mr gondo there he is really just steals the show for a few minutes and I, I think that's kind of a yeah that's some of that good pulpy energy that i appreciate and that i wish was a little bit more in here rather than some of the military stuff it's also a whole subplot about a giant microwave to heat up godzilla essentially why don't you go into your thoughts on that all right so
1: uh would circle back on one more human character. We got Major Sho Karuki. He's uh, one of the only other main, I want to say main characters. I don't know. There's like three or four separate like groups of characters in this movie, which is kind of hard to keep track of, you know, which ones are dealing with which plot. Because some of them kind of cross over and do stuff with each other, which I do kind of like at the same time. But he's the one in charge of the Super X. And unlike you, I, I, I like the Super X.
0: No shame in it. I had a feeling that a lot of people probably liked this element of it. And I do think that you need something there for the humans to create to fight Godzilla. I think, you know, having this be a world where humans are constantly trying to come up with these new things to combat Godzilla, I think is very realistic because he's a common threat in this world, you know, and sometimes it's more successful. Sometimes it's not for me. It wasn't as successful here, but I can see that not being the case for other people. I don't know about you, one of the, kind of on a complete side note here, one of the best shots in this entire movie is this tracking shot of Godzilla walking through the city. Just because we're already kind of past this point, but I didn't mention this, and I I feel like I should, as the theme sort of winds up, is one of the best Godzilla shots, just of him in all his glory. Uh, Not to mention that with the Showa era, it was harder for me to pick apart the different suits, whereas this one... I was like, wow, this is a great Godzilla suit because he looks awesome. You can very easily take him more seriously this time around.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because that was one of the scenes. I, I have a picture of it saved on my phone. I, the destruction of Osaka is one of the best scenes in, in any of the Godzilla movies. This is like the most destructive and terrifying, in my opinion, Godzilla has ever been. He feels like a force of nature. All right, so let's uh, jump back up to where we were talking in the microwave-type thing that they were doing. Yes, yeah. So out of nowhere, they kind of mentioned that, oh, yeah, we've been working on this super weapon, you know, for microwaving and everything. Oh, it was artificial weather. It was an artificial lightning storm that they wanted to be able to create. And the reason they're going to use it on Godzilla is they're trying to warm up his body temperature to activate the anti-nuclear bacteria so they can kill him. And, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. You know, I, I get what they're going for. In my opinion, I love the battle between him and the military at that. Because they got, I believe, the classic like military marches playing during it. And it just feels like a good action movie.
0: Okay, I can see I- that. I like that part. So we'll jump forward to sort of the big climactic battle. Because this, this was the moment I was waiting for for this movie. Because I loved the promise of Biolante up to this point. We hadn't seen her final form. Leading up to this fight, we get some really cool shots of Godzilla in the rain, which I loved just look really badass. And then her final form is just a work of art, as I've explained. And like I said, there's sort of the limbs just snapping off as Godzilla shoots them is really satisfying. Godzilla getting impaled with the vines. The combat feels so visceral and so cool. And Violante being such a unique villain I mean, if you want to call her a villain, I guess, but at least an opponent for Godzilla lends itself to some really entertaining combat that he hasn't had to deal with before. Again, this isn't a creature he can necessarily just pick up and throw around. Like, he kind of has to work his way around her and get to her. And in doing that, he gets injured a lot, which I really enjoyed. Um, The acid spraying across his face is really cool. All good stuff. What did you think of this fight? I really
1: liked it, because... It reminded me of when he fought Mothra on how she's a delicate plant, so of course Godzilla's atomic breath would do insane amounts of damage to her, which I thought was really cool. I will admit I found it weird that Godzilla's blood was green because uh, a little inconsistency because later in the series it's red.
0: I thought that bright green was Biollante's, like acid in her blood. Well, th- she does have
1: green blood as well, so that makes it a little jarring as well. Uh-huh. Because I'm like, when you see it, one of her vines go right through Godzilla's hand, which, ow, that looked painful. Yeah. You see green blood splurt out from Godzilla, so that was a little weird.
0: Oh, you know what? Yeah, I think I do remember that now. Okay.
1: The fight, to me, could have lasted maybe a little longer, but again, it's in the same vein as like Mothra and Biollante are both kind of weak to Godzilla's atomic breath. So it makes sense that when Godzilla starts unleashing it, it does mass amounts of damage and kind of takes her out. I think the
0: action was short, but it was also
1: fast-paced.
0: So I think for me, I was okay with that because it had the momentum that I feel like Return of Godzilla lacked a lot in its climax, where I feel like you have this big crescendo to the action at the end, and the action really pays off here. And it's a mile a minute, it's fast, it's violent. It kind of looks like it's one of those brawls where you're like, you just know neither of them are making it out of this alive or at least you know only one of them is and godzilla getting so injured just to take her down even though he does have an attack that is pretty much a trump card to take her out still shows how unique of a villain violante is and yeah i really enjoyed all that and then of course him finishing her off by blasting a beam down her mouth was really cool the OG
1: kiss of death.
0: Yeah, and her death was treated the way it should be. It was, it was emotional, it was powerful, and it was very good. And then after the fight, we take a little bit of a left turn, and I'm curious to see what you think of this, because we have this big monologue that the scientist who made Biolante goes off on, kind of about the how humanity is the real villain, they're the real monster. It's a little on the nose, but it's, it's fitting for this movie. And then he just gets shot. And that really surprised me. How did you feel about that moment? All right. So I actually want to jump back just a little. Mm. So
1: during the fight, we see the anti-nuclear bacteria affect Godzilla. He makes a beeline for the ocean because that's where he can cool down and kind of mm. heal himself. And he collapses on the beach after fighting Biolante. There's an alternate ending where Biolante sacrifices herself to bring Godzilla back from near death. And it's done using anime. Like, it starts off with Godzilla, yeah, it starts off with Godzilla collapsed, and obviously CG wasn't really a thing yet, and so they wanted to have Biolante kind of, like, latch itself around Godzilla, and kind of, like, heal him, and they used anime to show her transferring her energy to Godzilla. Interesting. To heal him and everything. At least that was my takeaway from it. Not like some people are like, oh, she's just trying to eat Godzilla to destroy him. And I was like, I saw it kind of okay. as you know her trying to sacrifice herself to heal Godzilla. It's Shirogami, right? I Is think that so. main doctor who created biolante Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So earlier in the movie, when the bio major people realized they aren't going to be able to have the Godzilla cells, they put a hit out on Shirogami so he couldn't create any more anti nuclear bacteria. So that's why they uh, kill him. And that definitely comes out as a shocker because it's like he just made a huge speech that he never wants to work on that again. Mm -hmm. You know, talking about the dangers of genetic manipulation. And then, boom, he gets killed. Crazy.
0: I was not expecting that. (laughs) Yeah, and then it goes into this sort of, like, chase and following fight after that with the sunglasses guy who's been kind of creeping around the whole time which I thought was a little out of nowhere. But again, I mean, we had just had a monologue about humans being the real villain. So it's only fitting that, you know, the monster that may be depicted as villainous earlier has this big, beautiful, grand death. Whereas then there's this gritty, dirty fight afterwards, which with the humans, which showed that like he was being the big evil at the end of it, which I I thought worked. I will say probably the best part of the ending of this movie for me, because I'm a huge fan of when things come full circle. And I don't know if you noticed this too, Josh, but the film sort of starts when we're introduced to Dr. Shiragami and his daughter at the beginning before she dies. We get the scene of him heading off to the lab and she gets in the car and with him and is like, he's like, oh, you're coming? And she's like, yeah, I'm going to stick by you no matter what. Paraphrasing, but something along those lines. No, I get it. If you'll notice, the two sort of romantic leads at the end get in the car and the guy's like, hey, what are you doing? And the girl's like, well, you know, after everything that happens, I'm going to stick by you no matter what. And I thought that was actually a really nice callback to the beginning. I Uh, didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was an interesting, I don't know what exactly they were trying to say there, but I think there's something beautiful about, you know, I think that it's kind of this acknowledgement that, hey, no matter what happens, you know, we only get one chance at this, this whole life thing. You know, maybe I'm reading too much into this Godzilla movie, but, you know, there's this whole idea that her getting in the car at the beginning with him led to the daughter's death. And it's almost like she would have preferred that anyways than having not stuck by her father. So I think that's sort of this acknowledgement that, like, we do what we have to, we stay by the people we want to stay by no matter what, probably not doing a very good job of verbalizing it. But I think that's sort of something that they were going for was the sort of idea of accepting that you can't cheat death, you can't dodge it. So you might as well keep sticking by the people you're going to stick by. If danger comes their way, It is what it is. But I think it's a pretty beautiful message and it sticks a little more strongly than some of the other messages in past Godzilla movies. And I think it was nice having an extra layer on top of the general bioengineering message.
1: Yeah, I agree, man. Kind of my new takeaway is kind of like the, you know, sticking by your loved ones and everything. That's kind of, now you bring that up, I'm kind of getting that vibe as well.
0: Yeah, I think overall for me, this film was good. I think it's like, and it's solid good, not just over the line like I felt like maybe a film like Terror of Mechagodzilla was. It was comfortably over the line of good. I think a couple things kept it from being the masterpiece for me that I think a lot of people feel it is. And I totally get why they feel that way because some of the pros in this make it very easy to overlook some of the cons. I, I think for me, I just wish it was a little more consistent. I think for me, this movie's biggest flaw, and you probably won't feel this way because I know you like the Super X and all that. I feel like was trying to check off the boxes of Godzilla things to put in this movie. Like, I feel like they were trying to, all right, we need a military march. We need tanks lining up. We need, you know, some sort of human machine to fight Godzilla. We need all these things. And for me personally, it would have been better without those things. But for a lot of people, I totally understand that it doesn't feel like a Godzilla movie without them. So I see it from both sides. I just love this one. I totally get it. it. It's one that I totally understand. I can honestly see people hating this movie too, but yeah, um, I think it probably has the widest spectrum of fans. Yeah. I
1: think this is one of those. You either really love it or you, you kind of hate it. I yeah. feel like that's how it kind of seems to be for the Godzilla fandom.
0: I'm probably in between those camps, but I, I think I'm closer to loving it than yeah. hating it for sure. Just because I do think that the leaps it takes are so original for a Godzilla movie that, it's worth it. You know, it's worth all those other things. All right. You want to move on to the next one? All right. So
1: yeah, let's move on to uh, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, the return of one of the biggest monsters in the franchise. He's part of Toho's big five, which is uh, one thing that's kind of cool is the big five all make a appearance in this series, which that's Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Mechagodzilla, and Rodan. Still weakened from the anti-nuclear bacteria following his battle with Biollante, Godzilla has remained dormant at the Sea of Japan for two years. However, a group of time travelers from the year 2204 have arrived in Japan and warned that Godzilla will soon return and destroy the nation. To prevent this, they undertake a mission to 1944 to remove a dinosaur from Lagos Island for it can be mutated into Godzilla by the Castle Bravo H-bomb test conducted at the nearby Bikini Atoll. The Futurians have other goals though, leaving behind three creatures called the Dorats on the island which are exposed to the bomb in the dinosaur's place and become the three-headed terror King Ghidorah. As King Ghidorah terrorizes Japan, the government enacts a desperate plan to recreate Godzilla with a nuclear sub, but it turns out That Godzilla was not actually erased from history as thought. After destroying and absorbing the energy from the nuclear sub, the empowered Godzilla prepares to face King Ghidorah himself. I kind of have a love hate relationship with this one. Okay. Because I really like a lot of elements of it, but there are some really wonky special effects and the time traveling is so confusing like wikizilla has almost like a 20 minute video just trying to make sense of how the time (laughs) travel works in the series i feel like they kind of bit off a little more than they could chew with this but good lord what works in this movie works your thoughts wes
0: all right man this was one of my favorite of the heisei era actually so I'm having a little, I feel like watching these movies, I'm actually learning a little bit about myself because I remember in our first episode, I had said that I would probably be more invested in the films with the more serious tone and that some of the goofy stuff was a little hard for me to really get into. However, I have found that watching these movies, my favorites are when they can combine those two things much like my big reference point being Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. It's a combination of like a pretty good story, good pacing. It even has a little bit of an emotional core, but there's not a ton. It has just enough, but just that sort of like rapid fire storytelling and the weird choices that they just expect you to go with and move on from as long as it's well paced and well shot and executed. And I feel like this movie does that for the most part. It's a movie I didn't realize I really loved until the end of it i would say probably like the last third i just kept getting more and more into this movie and sort of the weird choices they were making i would say yeah the last like 20 minutes i just sat there going i'd fucking love this movie and nothing changed you know everything that happened just kind of added to that i liked the time traveling elements i feel like they were actually I like when a movie doesn't sit there and try to explain everything to you. I like when it just kind of goes, don't think about it too much. The time traveling stuff is admittedly filled with holes. I mean, it's just a sieve. There's nothing concrete about it. I don't believe that you can map out the time rules in this movie and how things done in the past or the future affect anything really. I don't think you can really hold any of that to it, but I don't think it matters for me. I think this movie was just focused mainly on having fun. And we get everything from a rollerblading robot to a dinosaur in World War II to a woman eventually piloting King Ghidorah. It was all these crazy elements that I think actually really worked. I don't know. I think this one kind of hit a lot of did you like this one as a kid more or have you always kind of been middle of the road for it?
1: I've been very middle of the road for it.
0: Like I said, there's a lot of elements
1: I do like in this movie, but I don't know the effects. This is one of the only times the effects kind of take me out of the movie. Like, M11, really? who is the android, the scenes of him running, oh my god, <laughs> they're so
0: bad. I will admit, there's some bad green screen work there. I do think that the effects, as far as the creatures go, were pretty Oh, solid. yeah,
1: yes, the creature effects themselves are really good, but the blue screen and stuff that they use, and, like, the mothership is, this is, like, one of the only times I've really had a hard time, you know, gelling with the effects, because, obviously, I grew up on the Showa era, so it shouldn't bother me, but for some reason, this one, it does. <laughs> but um, they do actually have one plot line for the time travel that makes sense and they commit to it. And that is you can't bring one person to the same point in time. Like you can't bring a future person to their own past because that would yeah. just create a time paradox. And I'm like, that actually makes sense. And I'm glad they kind of ran with that and kept it the same.
0: True, but I also wonder if creating any rules kind of opens yourself up for criticism at that point, right? I feel like that's maybe where... That may have been a a bad move on their part because I feel like for a lot of people, the time travel stuff is not going to work. I mean, if you're someone who likes to sit there and pick apart any sort of element or rules to something established in a sci-fi film, this movie is really going to give you a headache and you're going to be pissed off. However, if you're someone like myself who can just go shore and rolls with it, because my thing is the only thing for me that the only stipulation I have with things like this being introduced, things like time travel are is that it needs to be good for the story. Does it pay off the story in an interesting way? And I think by them essentially going back in time and replacing Godzilla with Ghidorah, it's a lot of work and it's really silly and really stupid, but it also creates some really cool arcs. I love that there is a character from who fought in World War II named Shindo who I think very much like the prime minister from the first one has this really compelling relationship with Godzilla. Again, like I talked about how there's a lot of hyper-focus on relationships between characters and Godzilla. And I think this is one of my favorites is that he is actually saved by the dinosaur, the Godzilla I guess, right? Is before he becomes Godzilla after being hit by a nuke. And So he getting sort of saved by the Godzilla sword at the beginning and then following that to when he's later watching him destroy the city. We'll wait a little bit till I get to how that pays off. But to me, it was, again, a scene kind of mirroring the scene in 84 where I feel like it was just really powerful and really well done. I liked the character of Emmy a lot. She's one of the Futurians who kind of thinks that she's doing right, but the other two Futurians are, have something else up their sleeves, so she sort of turns on them halfway through the movie. And eventually, after King Ghidorah is killed, they recreate <laughs> Ghidorah as Mecha King Ghidorah and sort of this hybrid between Ghidorah and Mecha Godzilla. And she ends up piloting him to eventually fight as a protector against Godzilla. And I thought that was a pretty cool dynamic. I liked her little arc. I thought she was a cool character. And I also wish we got to see a little more of her later on. Of course, we get all sorts of crazy sci-fi shit, like a very Terminator-inspired robot here, which I think now would be a good time to have the conversation that these movies are very heavily... Influenced. There's something in almost each of these that feels heavily influenced by a movie that was popular at the time. Like, Biolante had, like I said, a lot of like Cronenberg horror moments. This one had Terminator. We see some other stuff in movies later. So I feel like you definitely get a lot of that. Josh, how did you feel about the concept of the whole Dorats, sort of the recreated origin story of Ghidorah? How did you feel about that? Or why don't you explain first what. They do, exactly, and then go from there.
1: All right, yeah, so with this one, King Ghidorah is no longer an alien, sadly. So they go back in time to erase what would become Godzilla because he's just strictly a dinosaur. It's not really explained how the hell he survived all the way up until then, but hey, cool. I love the fact that they're still with the anti-nuclear message, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's the nuke that still creates Godzilla no matter what. They drop off these three little adorably terrifying things known as the Dorats. There's mm-hmm. three of them. They uh, leave them on Lagos Island to be exposed to the radiation that Godzilla gets hit with. And, but instead of you know Godzilla being created, it's now King Ghidorah, which I'm okay with. I actually liked it. I thought that was a cool way to reintroduce Ghidorah in a non-alien way.
0: Well, are the Dorats technically aliens?
1: No, I think they said they're something like cybernetically enhanced creatures, I believe. Oh.
0: Yeah. yeah they were strange little genetically they like... engineered that's yeah. what i was going with okay that makes sense
1: so yeah king Ghidorah's design looks amazing i really dug his design in this movie i miss his manes though his little lion manes which we sadly never see a return of
0: i do really me. like this design though the longer horns and everything was sick
1: oh yeah he looks very menacing um, there is a couple shots of him flying that are a little stiff and a little rough to look at, but other than that, I really liked him. Yeah, to kind of circle back to Shindo though, that's played by veteran Godzilla actor Yoshio Setsuya. Um, he was in Destroy All Monsters, Son of Godzilla, I believe Invasion of Astro Monster. I think this is the best he's ever done in any of the movies. He killed it in this one. We also get returning actor Kenji Sahara making a return after uh. His last movie was Terror of Mechagodzilla, but he had a very small role in that one. So it's nice to see him, you know, kind of return, which he actually appears in two other ones in this era. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. Megumi Adoka returns as Mickey Sagusa yet again. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I did like elements of the plot to this one. Like I did like that we dive more into Godzilla's origin Mm -hmm. and everything But the time travel for me kind of
0: took me out of it. I totally get that. I do think that on top of Emmy and Shindo, I think there's a lot of good human characters here. Like I actually like the kind of the main guy as a writer who they kind of pull into all this. And it's a really convoluted reason as to why he has to be one of the ones traveling back in time. Right. Because essentially they and they kind of even pointed out they don't really do anything when they go back in time the robot guy I think does all the work right yeah. and I really liked his character he had this cool kind of um, almost a will they won't they relationship with his editor like they they were actually in a relationship but he kind of is so hung up on the fact that his book on Godzilla he learns from the future that Emmy basically tells him, yeah no no one knows about your book no one has ever heard of your book and that just kind of crushes him and, and gives him this whole sort of like second act existential crisis which I really loved and i think there's a point where like he's talking with his girlfriend on the phone or something and she's she basically is hinting at like getting married and he's like mentioned something along the lines of like yeah yeah i mean whatever sucks no one knows about my book <laughs> yeah kinda, like i don't know it makes him like likably narcissistic in a way you know and he snaps out of it as the story goes on they give him kind of a well-rounded arc and i i like that i think there was a lot of good dynamics between the characters it felt like these sort of they do that good ragtag group of like oh look at all these characters who are all very different kind of teaming up and i liked that i liked their getting to follow them throughout the whole story i do think that that chase you referred to where the terminator guy runs is a little that whole segment's probably one of the weaker points of the movie for multiple reasons. I don't know if you caught onto it, but there's a Tarzan yell as their car crashes through the semi. That's a bit much. <laughs> there's like a there little like, yeah, if you go back, there's like a literal, like, oh! <laughs> like it's, I it's, thought it was just, ah, uh, wow. I didn't even pick up on that. It's subtle, but it's, it definitely is there. And yeah, there's him. He's doing the straight up like Terminator run. There's a there's a couple dopey moments in this. Some of it I, I really liked, like the Emmy talking about their whole, once she discovers what the two white guy aliens, once she discovers what their plot is to replace Godzilla with Ghidorah, she goes, this is pretty much terrorism. And it's like, no, Emmy, that's just plain terrorism. Yep. <laughs> it's straight up terrorism. There's nothing, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But Emmy pretty much has this theme of saying, just like what's on everybody's mind at every time like at one yep. point she looks at someone i think it was actually when we're talking about his book not doing very well and she just says history has no room for or no it was actually maybe when they were back it was when they were back in world war 2 i think seeing the godzilla um godzilla sore or whatever and they're all kind of like oh man i kind of feel bad and she just says history has no room for sentimentality <laughs> i was like ain't that the truth that eh, girl like you got it yep i actually remember that
1: and <laughs> One thing that's really funny about the Godzilla-saurus is uh, he has Gamera's roar. Really? Yep. That roar he has is Gamera's. It's so weird. It's like, how did Toho get the rights to use Gamera's roar? So that was interesting. I did actually, do. I do like her character. I do like the human cast a lot. Like, I do like the writer, how he just, like you said, uh, his name is Terasawa. Mm-hmm. I, I do like how he has the, like existential crisis that he's like, he knows when the book comes out, how well it does. And like <laughs> that, that must be quite the shock.
0: Oh, and that was it too. Was she, I think his editor slash girlfriend kind of suggests another title to him. And he's like, yeah, I, no, that's not going to be it. Cause I end up naming it that in the future and it doesn't sell <laughs> like, <Yeah. there's laughs> stuff like that. Like she's trying to be all like cute and helpful. And of course he's just not having any of it. It's interesting because I feel like this movie had everything that, say, Return of Godzilla lacked, which was we're more invested in the human characters. They're more fun to watch. There's a little bit of levity there that Return of Godzilla could have used. And the monster action is fast paced and great. I think what it lacks is what a film like Return of Godzilla has, which is a more interesting overall compelling story that's not so messy. I am surprised at how easily you can follow some of this time travel stuff, even though it makes no sense. They do make it pretty clear, which I was glad. That's my biggest thing is I I just don't like it getting too convoluted. You know, I don't mind if it doesn't always add up, but as long as it's simple enough to feel like a straightforward narrative and not like we're changing gears every five seconds because time travel is involved. Can we also uh, talk about the fact that uh, Akira Fukube returns to score this? We should because...
1: It's awesome. Oh my God, it is amazing to hear him after the two pretty lackluster scores to a movie. It's so nice to hear him step up and be like, no, 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 this is how we score a Godzilla movie. Yeah. And oh, this yeah. is the one that 100% cements Godzilla's theme, which they use throughout the rest of the series. And it's just like, this is what I want out of his music.
0: Right, which is a combination of that kind of booming intro, like with the slow, like, burr, 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 and then... Combined da, with da, da, the famous da, da, refrain. Da, da, yeah. Da, 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 da. Uh and kind of building up into that, which I really like. It's sort of a wind up, which it just sounds amazing. The crescendo's great. Let's talk about the action, cause once it gets down to it, both the fight with Godzilla versus Vanilla Ghidorah, we'll call him, and yeah. <laughs> Godzilla versus Mecha Ghidorah both are really, really impressive. It's a total um And this is something we haven't talked about yet. But one thing that this franchise is infamous for, I think maybe we mentioned it in our Showa episode, is that famous or infamous for is the amount of beam attacks used in fights. The Heisei era is known as the beam era. (laughs) The beam era, right? And at this, Godzilla is the only one with beams up to this point, right? So now we have. Biolante had its acid breath that's true but it was it was different it had a different effect yeah. i feel like it didn't feel like it was just you know two people just standing on one side or the other like godzilla had to get up in her face to fight yeah. her whereas with godora it was a lot of the sort of zapping back and forth at this point i was okay with it i actually didn't mind that at all it was also it was really refreshing to see godora back i think after return of godzilla i was just dying for another monster for godzilla to fight um, yeah and then Biolante came in which was cool but she offered a very unique experience so it was cool to see a more this had some of those more classic fights with the updated effects which like you said a little spotty here and there but I think the beam stuff does feel a little more realistic as to how these monsters would fight rather than like the straight up luchador matches
1: of the Showa era though I do like the fact that we get to see Godzilla you know whipping Ghidorah around by its tail Like, Mm -hmm. it's nice to see that Godzilla's still, you know, fucking strong as all hell. Yep. This is also the start of King Ghidorah getting at least one head decapitated.
0: Oh, man. So good. Yeah, so Ghidorah is, like, wrapping Godzilla up with his middle head, and Godzilla starts foaming at the mouth. And then Godzilla has this, like, this is the first time I think we talked about how he has this almost, like, energy burst of, like, radiation. Is it the second? Yep.
1: Uh, he uses it once before in Violante when she wraps him with her vines oh, during the final okay. bottle. Yeah. Um, he uh, uses his nuclear pulse and gets the vines off him. And then he uses it when Ghidorah choking him out and he uses it as to get Ghidorah off him so he can, you know, attack. Because if he didn't do that, Ghidorah almost might have won
0: yep and again this is another element that kind of reminds me of dragon ball z i'm kind of having this revelation out loud as we're talking about them but i really feel like the action feels very uh i think dbz was after but it, it feels very inspired by these movies anyways so yeah he has that like energy burst and then he knocks the door to the ground and then he just blasts his head off <laughs> and then he turns right to the villainous aliens and then shoots them it was good shit and then we get one of the destruction best, of tokyo well yeah and, and one of the best emotional moments with shindo having a stare down with godzilla and talking about how it's basically poetic that the dinosaur that saved him all those years ago in world war ii is now the one killing him i loved that I thought it was oh really, my god really good. I,
1: i've been waiting to talk about this scene it's brilliant oh my god it's so well done and not much dialogue is said he like stops talking on the phone to the main cast and just mm-hmm. kind of makes eye contact with Godzilla. And you can see Godzilla is kind of like re- almost registering something in his head, you know, he's almost making that connection, but he just kicks back in with his destructive habits and just destroys the building
0: and then continues on his way. Which if we haven't mentioned already, the nuances in Godzilla's facial work this time around are brilliant. I mean Oh my god, this is the most expressive I think Godzilla's ever been in the series. The animatronics you get convey actual emotion. And it's cool because like you were talking about how he's not much of a character, he's more of a symbol in Return of Godzilla. We get to watch him slowly become a character yeah. through these facial expressions, through this kind of his very complicated relationship with humans, right? And reaches kind of a peak in this moment. You, I almost expected to hear kind of the Kill Bill music as they're facing off, kind of that... And then, uh, you know, you get these close-ups of their eyes and their faces kind of cross-cut with each other until finally Godzilla just blasts him. And it's such a powerful moment. You get that nice little moment of silence before he's killed.
1: All you hear, too, right before he gets killed. So it's kind of silent for a sec. And then all you hear is the sound of his atomic breath. And then it cuts back into Mm -hmm. the full sound of the building exploding. And I think Godzilla's roar.
0: And, of course, now that... Godzilla is reigning supreme. Humans need something to take him out. So what do they do? But I think they have to mess in with time again to do this, yeah. right? And they, Yeah,
1: Emi goes back to her timeline back in 2204
0: mm-hmm.
1: and finds where King Ghidorah's body was found You know, off this coast of Hokkaido.
0: And then Emmy pilots this new Mecha King Ghidorah, which is one of my favorite design so far i love the design of this it's so cool the middle head which was the one that was blasted off is metal and then you get these kind of like metal lined wings they almost have sort of a kite frame structure with like a more y material in between them and then you get the um he has this really cool like metal spine and then You have like little metal tips on the ends of his tails, which was really cool. I I absolutely love this design. And her piloting it was just this perfect. Yeah, it really did kind of feel a little anime here (laughs) in a a cool way. And I really appreciated that. And it added this new element because I think up to this point, we hadn't seen a lot of like a human up against Godzilla with something that could actually take him down. And then of course, she ends up using sort of that weird like clamping device that like stabs into him, picks him up, and then drops him in the water, which I, I'm i always very confused by when their solution to taking out Godzilla is to drop him in the water, because he's from the water, but I'm not going to read too far into it. It's
1: still- I think they're just trying to get him out of Japan, be
0: like, go, go back <laughs> yeah, to the ocean. Exactly, right? Like, get out of here. It's like, you know, locking your animal out of a room, you know? <laughs> You're like, yeah. alright, go, go, go do your thing. Yeah, I feel like I like this one way more than I should watching it. There were a lot of glaring flaws, but I didn't care because I just had so much fun with it. Maybe I'll feel differently upon rewatches, but for me, this was one of the most fun. This was the first time in the Heisei era I felt like I watched one that really clicked with me. Yeah. um, I was surprised that it was one of the goofier ones.
1: Yeah, and one thing I do like is, they um, back to talking about how expressive Godzilla was, is they gave him a little bit of a quirk where when he gets confused, he does this kind of like backwards head shake where he pulls his head back and yeah, it's just you see it kind of throughout the series when he's like, "Whoa, that didn't work. What a what?" Yeah. <laughs> so it's nice I, I did that they that a couple times. It's nice that they gave him that little bit of a personality that, you know, he's like, "Whoa, I'm not top dog right now. What?"
0: Yeah. It, it um, throws him off when he's not like the, the king shit. Yeah.
1: And yeah, Mecha King Adora looks amazing. I wish they could have moved him a little more, but apparently the prop that they had for Mecha King Adora was really heavy, so they kind of were been. limited. Yeah. There was still even a suit actor in it, too. So it's just like that poor bastard.
0: <laughs> so much sweat. Oh, my God. Doused. But, yeah, so that's, that's Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. Did you have anything else to add on that one? No, but it,
1: it is a fun one. I just didn't connect with it like I thought I would.
0: That's fair, yeah. And I, I connected with it a lot more than I thought I would. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. All right. So next up is Godzilla versus Mothra. After a meteorite impacts the Earth, both Godzilla and an ancient evil known as Batra are reawakened. Miniature twin fairies called the Cosmos appear to warn humanity of the danger posed by Batra and allow the egg of their deity Mothra to be transported to Japan. En route, the transport is attacked by Godzilla, forcing Mothra to hatch and fend for herself. When Batra arrives, it becomes a three-way battle between the monsters, each intent on destroying the others. This culminates in a final showdown in Yokohama between Godzilla and the Imago stages of both Mothra and Batra, who find that they must work together in order to overcome their common foe. So, call me a Mothra fanboy. I don't care. I love everything Mothra, and up to this point, at this moment, this was my favorite Heisei movie. It's so fucking good. I think that it's important to say right off the bat, a lot of times this is an element of the film that we mention a little later, I think it's important to say right off the bat that I'd say a good 20% of the success of this movie is the music. This movie has the best score of any Godzilla movie <laughs> so far and it takes a lot of the motifs from the original Mothra versus Godzilla and just blows them up to this big cinematic level that makes this movie feel a lot like you're just watching this like visual concert half the time and almost like something like Fantasia or something just in how beautiful the moments are done there's a lot of great moments in this that where they just sort of not stop the film but they take a moment that's going on um something like Mothra going into her cocoon state or Mothra coming out of her cocoon state are both great examples of moments where any other movie would maybe sort of rush through that a little bit. But this movie stops and has the human characters as well as the audience does sort of just watch in awe while this beautiful music plays and while something visually beautiful happens in front of us as well. I think that the dichotomy between the three monsters and the relationship between the three monsters is probably one of the most captivating dynamics on its own let alone the human story working really well as well. I think this was something that really fired on all cylinders. I was surprised at, on top of being really beautiful and artistic and meditative, this is also a pretty fast-paced film as well. It dumps a lot of action in it, and a good chunk of this movie is action. And that was something I was really surprised by, because with the Mothra movie, you usually expect something a little more visually and sonically poetic, which this is, but it also balances being an, a really entertaining action movie. And I think this has some of my favorite effects, some of my favorite creature designs, and this definitely ranks up there as one of my favorite Godzilla movies we've watched so far. So Josh, I'm, I'm dying to know what you thought of this, both when you were younger, how you feel about this compared to the original Mothra versus Godzilla, and sort of if this rewatch changed any of that for you. All right. Spoilers, Wes, but I love it. Big exhale. I'm so glad I'm not the only one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, I don't love it as much as the original Monster vs. Godzilla 1. That one kind of hit me a lot harder on this rewatch. Which is understandable. um, But this is a worthy successor. Yeah, Jesus. um, There's a lot of good in this. And like we were talking about in the last movie, how uh, there was definitely some Terminator inspiration for this one. Ghidorah, I mean. This one has inspiration from Deanna Jones. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love it when Godzilla does fantasy ad- and adventure in their films because it just kind of gives it a more epic scope, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, we mentioned that with sort of 50% of Godzilla Mecha Mechagodzilla, right? The whole yeah. King Caesar stuff and the prophecy and it all feels like that. But this, this doubles down on that in the first half, at least. It kind of fades out yeah. towards the end, but that's okay because that's when it becomes... That's when it f- moves more into the traditional monster stuff. Exactly.
1: But yeah... Mothra is, this is the most beautiful, I think, or second most beautiful. There's one we'll get to on who I think is the most beautiful Mothra. Her scenes of going into the cocoon and then coming out are just, like, the Mahara song yeah. is just, I was legit getting shit. Like, the hair on my arms was standing up, and like you said, Wes, Akira Fukubei just scored the fuck out of this movie. He was just like, nah, man, this is how we do it.
0: After both of us being pretty head over heels for the first Mothra movie, I make sure that anytime I'm about to watch a Mothra-centric one, I have Leah watch it with me, too, because she really loved the first one, and she really liked this one, too. And yeah, there were multiple times where I looked over at her, and I was like, it's cool to cry now, right? Because I'm, I'm crying <laughs> And uh, multiple occasions. I mean, maybe three or four, and you know this is a good movie when, you know, obviously the music helps a lot. But it's not just this hollow manipulation. A lot of these moments are built really well up to this point. And I think they do a great job of establishing what Mothra is and is a symbol of. And that's something we'll get into later. But I think when she's in a movie, it immediately injects this heart and soul that you don't really have in other Godzilla movies. And not to say that those are lacking, it's just that they then have the job of replacing that with something as captivating as what Mothra adds to a film. But I think a Mothra movie to me so far, from what I've experienced, kind of almost starts at this much higher minimum than the others. Because one, I think the music becomes a lot more inspired. I think there's a lot more... Yeah, I think it's interesting that a lot of her themes are sung rather than being orchestral like Godzilla's. I think that's a really cool difference between their music.
1: And one thing I really appreciate that the uh, Sony Blu-rays do is they translate the lyrics for the audience to be able to read along with it.
0: That was really cool.
1: Because now I finally more or less know the lyrics. Don't ask me to recite them, but I know them at least.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and... I knew this movie was going to be special for a couple of reasons. One, obviously Mothra's in it, so I was going to love it. But they waste no time creating this epic atmosphere at the beginning. And the credits do this really cool thing. I don't know if you noticed this, but when a very like key point in the music reaches in the opening credits, uh, Akira Fukube's name comes up. And when they show the landslide revealing Mothra's egg, the name of the special effects director comes up. So now I don't know how intentional that was, but that was something I noticed that I was like, this movie already feels very deliberate. It's not just this, it could very easily be these generic shots just kind of, and throw in the credits when they appear naturally, but it felt very deliberate in how they did that. And immediately I was like, okay, there was a lot of, a lot of love put into this one. Not that there's not in all of these, because like we said, that's something inherent with these is it feels like director's. Even the ones I don't connect with as much, I can feel a love for what they're doing watching these films. So this one especially felt like they were just clicking on all cylinders.
1: I just adore this one. Um, to me, the plot could have used a little more working. They're a little heavy-handed on the themes of the movie, which has always been pro-environment, like anti-big business and everything. That's been a mainstay of Mothra, and I love that that's where her films kind of You know, deal with
0: punk rock Mothra.
1: Yep, (laughs) I just wish that they were a little more subtle, like uh, Honda was in his take in the series. But I do appreciate that that they were staying true to what Mothra was.
0: I I agree. I think. For me, I didn't mind the heavy-handedness so much because again, we're coming off of Biolante a couple movies ago where they literally look at the screen and tell you that humans are the real monster. So I mean, I didn't mind the heavy-handedness so much. Again, I think a lot of my bias towards this character, I think Mother's just such a captivating character. And again, I'll I'll get into kind of a theory I have with her relationship with Godzilla a little later, but I just want to first kind of list some of the story elements we start off with. So you sort of have this Indiana Jones type stand-in who, what's the first mission he's on? Is it like this? He's
1: uh, just in some ancient temple. I believe it's in the Philippines? Yeah. Um, he's just raiding a temple, like looking for some treasure, and he causes the temple to collapse in on itself. Very Indiana Jones-esque.
0: Yeah, the and, scene uh, with he- the stairs was really cool where they fall out from under him.
1: Yeah, and um, he gets arrested, and his ex-wife and um, <laughs> one of the reoccurring characters from the previous movie show up, mm-hmm. and he's like, yo, we got a mission for you to go to uh, Infant Island, because um, a business tycoon has bought it, and they need someone to go you know, check it, because they believe, uh... no, they didn't know about Mothra's egg at that point. They don't discover it until they get to the island. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, his mission is just to go scope it out, I believe.
0: Yeah. And I like how this movie has a lot of like you were explaining that his ex-wife was involved too. And I kind of like this movie has a lot of plot conveniences like that, where it's sort of like, oh, of course, this character would have this job, but is also connected to this character in another way. So they're all involved in the plot and tighten it. But what I like about that, as contrived as it may seem, it keeps these things from feeling disconnected, right? It connects it all very well. And I'm actually very much okay with it, especially in a movie that talks a lot about unity and how things are all connected, very much like you know Godzilla and Mothra. And I love how our lead is kind of this character who they sort of dump into the situation because they know he can't resist it. And even the ex-wife is like, he's going to say yes, he's going to do it. And she's even the one that recommends him. And despite that clearly being an instinct for her to not want him to do stuff like that, and you can imagine that was probably a lot, a pretty contentious theme in their marriage. But I like that she sort of still thinks of him to do that and still recommends him because she knows it's in his nature and appreciates that about him. So immediately you have this more complex dynamic between two human characters than we've had in most of the franchise, in my opinion. I think their relationship's are very compelling and usually the romances feel a little tacked on but this one really feels well-rounded and i think they do a good enough job of getting it to that point by the end of the film where they wrap it up it comes full circle there's a really good it's a simple but it's a really good dramatic arc that allows you to care about them so but by the time when they are just sort of watching the action take place you don't mind that they're not really more tangibly involved because you feel like they've done their thing up to this point and now yeah now it's the monster monsters movie
1: yeah, and uh, one thing that's actually really interesting is this was the second highest grossing film of 93 in Japan.
0: Wow, really? What was the first? Do you know? Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Yeah, that, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, Steven Spielberg. I mean, come on.
0: That makes sense. Oh, actually, total callback here, but I think it was either Ghidorah or Biollante. There's a colonel named Spielberg. Do you, yep, do that's, you, uh, or Major, Major yeah. Spielberg.
1: Yep, that was Godzilla vs. Ghidorah when they uh, time travel back to the Lagos Island. And one of the colonels is like, what, are you going to tell them we were invaded by little green men, Major Spielberg? Yep. That was a very on-the-nose.
0: Absolutely. And it's, again, shows this whole era is kind of, it is in a lot of ways a love letter to American films and it's kind of their interpretation of him.
1: And And the main reason we can see a lot of that is it's from the writer, Uh, Kazuki Omori, Mm -hmm. who directed a handful of these and wrote most of the Heisei. So whenever you get some of those over-the-top American-style references and everything, it's Mm -hmm. from him. Oh, yeah. Which his best one is in the last movie we'll talk about. (laughs)
0: Yep. So yeah, we get a lot of cool stuff, sort of this Indiana Jones adventure setup. And while the the human stuff is so compelling, the movie also wastes no time to get to the monster stuff. So we established that there's Batra, who is essentially this anti-Mothra, created by a lot of the same things as Mothra, but more the bad side of it. And I really loved that dynamic there. And Batra's reveal is very, they did a good job of making him very unique he has this sort of larval form like mothra does but he looks less like a little dog turd like mothra's larval form and more like a the head of a power rangers villain i guess with like a little slug body (laughs) and it has like this cool like jagged horn at the front
1: yeah it's a really cool design and i love that mothra is supposed to be the symbol of mother nature's love for earth And Batra is like the symbol of Mother Nature's hatred and everything, which is a cool concept.
0: Yeah, and I guess while you're bringing that up, I guess we'll get into initial struggle I had with this movie and then an understanding I had with kind of the relationship of Godzilla and Mothra. And this is cool because you had said you've heard this before and you kind of felt that way. And also shout out to Up From The Depths is a really cool, anyone listening to this who's interested in Godzilla at all, you should listen to this guy. He's really great. He delves into the franchise a lot. And I've been sort of watching these reviews after I watch the movies just to kind of see what he thinks and his interpretation of them. And we don't always agree, but I totally, I think that his opinions always have merit and he clearly knows what he's talking about. And he's a really smart guy and has a good interpretation on the franchise. But you told me that after I told you my theory about it, that he had a similar theory, which at first I was like, God damn him. But also, uh, <laughs> you know, very, it makes me happy to know that other Godzilla fans who love the franchise as much as us feel that way too. So kind of at the halfway point of this movie, I started to think that Godzilla didn't really belong in this movie. Could have just been about Mothra and Batra, right? You have, like you said, you very much have this, this love and hate, this black and white between the two of them. What I realized is when you watch this movie as a part of the whole series, Godzilla's sort of become a piece of the mythology in this world that the movies take place in. And I feel like he's really the symbol of nature's wrath, right? Like he's the vengeance lashing out at Earth and humans. And so he's not really, he doesn't really care who's right and who's wrong. He just knows that these people have done this to him. Whereas Mothra is a symbol of its mercy. And I feel like both of them tend to, they have dabbled in The other philosophy before, we've seen, we actually see in a really kind of tragic portion of this movie, we see Mothra become vengeful because she's basically met by just getting shot at. So we see her lash out violently against the city and humanity, and that's really heartbreaking because we know She doesn't want to. Yeah, having seen the franchise, we know she's not like that. Which is another thing that you know you could call it. It could very easily be a weakness of these films, having to see certain ones to understand others. But I don't really think so. I think these movies work, as I explained with *Destroy All Monsters*. I think these movies work as pieces of a whole, and I I think you would still get a lot out of it regardless. But you know, anyway. So she has this vengeful rampage on the city after the humans kind of relentlessly attack her, and they do it unprovoked. You know, it's it's just they just see her and they're like shit oh giant monster gotta go kill it yeah and again they also do a good job of establishing that since we know the last few movies have taken place and are canon in this movie we know they've been through a lot lately so we also you know we almost don't hold it against the humans either But yeah, so obviously Mothra delves a little bit into the vengeance side of things. Godzilla delves a little bit into the mercy side of things, but each one mostly stays firmly rooted in their philosophy that they represent, forever emulating different sides of the same coin. So it feels pretty natural that very much like Batman and the Joker, you can't have one exist without the other. And every time they're together, It's always a dynamic moment. You know, it's always captivating because they are so different in that regard. And I actually found Batra is kind of an in-between of these two, right? Like I kind of felt like if you want to compare it to like the Dark Knight, right? Like Batra was kind of the two-face. Batra was the one that, except from the opposite side, like kind of started off feeling vengeful and then eventually came around to author side, you know, which we'll get to. But yeah, I just thought that was something really interesting about this. And I think that the fact that these movies do acknowledge that they're always aware of Godzilla's presence looming over, I think it, it creates for this really captivating atmosphere that you don't have in any other film franchise where, you know, even if you forget it's a Godzilla movie watching it, there's that fear of he could pop up and fuck shit up at any time. And I think that creates a really interesting dynamic with this franchise that's unique to it.
1: Yeah. And I absolutely love that about it too because I love that Godzilla is depicted as a force of nature in this series. He's not like the gung-ho superhero he became in the uh Showa films. He is back to his roots as just he's a force of nature and he does what he wants. You know, no regard to, you know, humanity or even other monsters, except for one we'll get to in the next movie. I think this might actually be my favorite uh Heisei design. Is either this or the 94 suit, but Godzilla looks amazing in this movie, yeah. and when uh, he busts out of the volcano, to Fukabe's score is just badass and menacing. <laughs> yep. And can we also bring up the fact this is now the second time he's erupted from a volcano in this series? Yeah. This is now the second, and just the short of a time span and everything, he's already boom two volcanoes. Whatever.
0: If you're gonna show up to a party, what option looks better? than popping out of a volcano. I know, right? I don't think there's one. Want to skip to the final battle a little? Yeah, because oh. I think... Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, I actually just had a brief thought of uh, mm-hmm. something I want to quickly mention, is uh, mm-hmm. when we get to see Batra do its rampage before it you know, fucks off and fights Godzilla and Mothra mm-hmm. for the first time, there's a scene where he's uh, burrowing under one of the cities. Yeah. And it reminds me of the Graboids from Tremors because you just see the dust trail before it erupts out of the ground. And I just I had to make a note of that (laughs) because I think Tremors came out maybe two, three years before this one. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to reference that that they made me think of that movie.
0: Yeah. And I could totally see that. A couple of things I want to bring up before we get to the finale is so that human story, right, is at one point. So the ex-husband, the ex-wife, they kind of have to reunite for this mission. And then they're at the airport at one point to meet up with their daughter. And he sees the daughter before the ex-wife does. And the girl doesn't quite see him. And so he basically hightails it before she can reunite with her parents. Uh, So she just sees her mother and asks where her dad is and she looks around find him and he's not there and then we cut to the scene of him like looking at them from afar having bailed from that area in the airport and he's almost like tearing up i think it's important to mention this guy does a really good job of playing that sort of like han solo indiana jones type but also plays these human moments really well And it was a moment like this. This is an example of you can do so much with a character in such a small bit of time. You know, like I said, this movie has so much monster action, but a moment like that can be so good. And then, you know, it can go a long way. And then they finally come together later when the building is almost destroyed by Mothra going on a rampage. And it reveals, we also reveal a little bit before that, that he's about to sell the Cosmos, which the Cosmos are the, pretty much they are, the Shobijin from the original movie, just renamed. And he's about to essentially sell them. And we find out that he basically chooses not to do that because his family would be very disappointed in him. So he kind of has to choose what he's going to prioritize and him choosing to prioritize with his family. Like I said, it's a very simple dynamic, but it's enough to sort of relate to this character. I feel like.
1: I totally thought – I wasn't quite paying attention to all the dialogue because it is hard to for me at least to read subtitles and watch what's going on at the same time. I'm s- still working on getting better <laughs> at that. I totally thought he was trying to get the fairies back from the evil corporation that had them at that moment.
0: No, so the first guy steals them. There was that yeah, guy who's with him, Ando, yeah. who steals them and brings them to the company. And then he steals them from the company. And then tries to sell them. And the wife has to, the ex-wife convinces him to not sell them. And I like that because we really, Leah and I were both talking, we really liked that character. And then halfway through, we're like, oh man, is he going to be a shithead? And like the idea of him, it was such a, for me, it was a pretty daring choice to show that with him. Considering he was like the biggest heart of the film so far. So I love that they weren't afraid to kind of show this flawed side of him and then eventually have him overcome that by the end. And by the end, you know, you get this very, it's very literal, but you know, instead of his sort of more unkempt appearance up until this point in the movie, he's in like a suit and his hair is all combed and he chooses not to, he chooses to hold on to the cosmos. And then, yeah, so we get the really beautiful stuff with Mothra going into her cocoon form and then just in time for Godzilla to show up and say, fuck you city. And then now we can, of course, get into the action.
1: The action is a little stiff, but it's really cool at the same time. Just because they're mainly dealing with two flying puppets, opposed to you know two people in suits sure. battling it out, it's a little harder to do flying props sometimes. Mothra like still pretty lo- good here. Though, yeah, though. I was about to say Mothra still looks beautiful. Like when she comes out of her cocoon and like flaps her wings and flies away for the first time, dude, it's beautiful. That is beautiful right there. It's so like,
0: amazing. And the slow buildup to it too. Like when she comes out of the cocoon and like one wing, you see one wing kind of pop out of the right, then another pop out of the left. And it's just such, and again, of course they have Shobi Jin or Cosmos music playing during it. And it's just, oh, it's so amazing. And it gets me every time. And I think that was another moment. I was just like, yeah, I had my hair's, Stood up on my arm, and it was a perfect oh same combination same. of visual and sonic, just like majesty. All you know, not to be too hyperbolic, but you know, really kind of all working on the same level.
1: One thing I found very interesting to kind of harken back on the whole Mothra and Godzilla being two sides of the same coin is Godzilla feels like a wild card in this movie. He's kind of doing his own thing, and I kind of like that for once, that he's not, like, the even though his name's in the title, he's not the focal point. He's not, you know, the one. He just kind of shows up, he's, you know, doing his own thing, and I love it for that. And his fight with Mothra is really awesome. Like, it's so much more intense than it was in the first movie. No longer is it her kids fighting Godzilla, it's herself with the help of Batra. Which is cool that the battle actually starts out as a three-way. It starts out with Mothra and Batra fighting, and then Godzilla shows up. And he's like, "Yo, you miss me?" And then he gets entangled in it. And then when Godzilla more or less takes out Batra for the most part, and Mothra has left to fend for herself, she's like, "Oh shit!" Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that we get to see. So they incapacitate Godzilla. I believe Mothra knocks him into a building, and you know, collapses on him, and he's just like, "Ah, shit, here mm-hmm. we go again." And so Mothra then goes over and starts healing Batra and. Cosmo tell us that they're communicating and Mothra just like she did in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster convinces Batra to fight the greater evil which is Godzilla and we get to see Godzilla use his nuclear pulse again to escape the building and collapse on him
0: he loves that and, pulse
1: oh yeah yeah, the fight is awesome because there's a shot that you had mentioned that I have is mentioned as well as we see from like the people on the streets point of view, we just see the sky and we see like Mothra and Batra and then Godzilla's all their beams are like flying through the sky and it's just, it's so cool there's no music
0: it's just those three beams just kind of like shooting in the distance and the sound design is so good you just hear like and they're all different colors and it's yeah it's really it's really cool and to go back to kind of the beam fighting i feel like it works better here i think because this in earlier iterations mothra didn't have any beam attacks and this was the first time they gave her those and they give them the batra as well they do a good job of making all the beam attacks look different very much reminds me how you look at something like, you know, Kylo Ren's lightsaber, right? Like has this very like chaotic energy in the movies. And I feel like that they sort of do that with Batra's energy a little bit too, which is really cool. You see a lot of stuff like that where it's particular to the characters. So even if you could just be seeing the beams like we were in that one shot and you know exactly who's firing what, just another visual representation of where all these characters kind of stand. And I think the beam attacks works for this because you don't have... Mothra and Batra are not these brute force type creatures. They're these graceful flying creatures that have to use more creative attacks like that. So I think the beam attacks really work in this.
1: And one thing that's amazing is they somehow with each one of these Heisei films, Godzilla's Atomic Breath just looks better and better with each movie. And it's just like, it blows my mind. It already looked good in 84. So to have it look even better just a few movies later, it's just like, Jesus, you guys, you're doing a great job with that.
0: And there's something about it coming out of the the suits instead of it coming out of a CG creature that just helps you. It's the perfect use of of CG and effects. Yeah, of computer effects where, yeah, we don't feel... It just kind of takes a little bit of the apparent artifice out of it and allows you to... It just makes it feel more tangible combining those more artificial elements with real elements. I loved the... I think one of the coolest moments is when the Ferris wheel is about to fall on Mothra Mothra and Batra saves her. Again, that was a moment that I just like got up and cheered. They really nail all of the kind of shifting moments of the dynamic. And again, adding to the fact that the Heisei era found a way to give these creatures personalities without them feeling too cartoonish or anthropomorphic and making them feel like animals, but also feeling like they have individual personalities. They did that really, really well. That they have thoughts of
1: their own and everything. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And this was the first one where I feel like they nailed that balance extremely well. Yeah. So I feel like, overall this is just a beautifully shot film really well acted film the effects are incredible and this one was definitely a huge highlight for me and I think it's important to point out that this was where I started to get that feeling again which I was really hoping I'd feel again when we saw the original Mothra and Ghidorah in the Showa era and kind of that feeling like you're just riding this high of like all these good movies and this for me was really felt like we were in a good streak and so yeah so the last thing I wanted to mention about Godzilla versus Mothra was actually how this film wraps up. Like the rest of it, it's all very lyrical and poetic. You know, we see our respective send offs for all our characters and the monsters, of course. And you do have sort of this mirroring shot of all the human characters waving goodbye to Mothra, just like you would in most Godzilla movies. However, what was really cool about this is that mothra flies off and up into space and they follow the shot and it, at first i was like oh boy is this going to be cheesy but it actually works extremely well and of course we have a music playing and they do this cool transition from an acoustic version of the theme to then the orchestral version of the theme which was really really neat and that theme is the
1: sacred springs from the original yep. mothra versus godzilla which blew my mind when i first when it clicked with me oh my god that was that theme and i was like It's so
0: good. It was so
1: beautiful. Another scene that gave me chills.
0: Yeah, they do this almost, um, it feels like almost a more tropical acoustic rendition of it beforehand. And then they go straight into beautiful orchestral version, the full version. And I don't know if this was an error in the the version I watched, because I watched a stream version. And I don't know if for some reason they couldn't show the end credits or what. But did this happen for you? Where after Mothra flies off into space, it cuts to black and then instead of credits, it just stays on black and the music plays. And I don't know if you had that experience, but for me, it was weirdly beautiful and I, again led to me weeping because I'm a big I'd baby have to bitch, rewatch it. it I don't
1: I think my I think my version does play the full
0: credits. Okay. For with me. The music it, playing. it didn't do any credits. It just kinda cut to black and it almost made it more affecting for me. <laughs> so that was something I just wanted to ask you, but yeah, no, I think it
1: um, stays the same. Right. I, like, it does, like, actual credit roll and everything.
0: Well, I recommend watching it when it cuts to black sometime because it's, it's pretty emotional. It's pretty good.
1: <laughs> I'll have to do that then. One thing I kind of realized while watching through this one again is it felt like a really good combo of all the previous Mothra movies. You had, like, some elements from the original Mothra, mm-hmm. then elements from Mothra versus Godzilla, and then just more elements of the Godzilla franchise as a whole. So it felt like a good combination of all those combined. I, it, I don't think you really really could get much better than that for a combo.
0: Yeah, and it honored all of those and was its own thing. And it makes it so that, because my first thought, of course, like, you can't help but compare it to the original. And my first thought was yeah. like, which one do I like better? But I don't really think that's fair. I think no matter where they end up on my rankings at the end of the day, I think these are both amazing films in their own right. And I think they exactly. both do every character involved justice. And it for this being, you know, for Batra having to play a third fiddle to both Godzilla and Mothra, you would think that this would be a hard film to just introduce another creature when you have two of the most captivating iconic. creatures of the franchise yeah and the most iconic ones but they do a lot of really cool stuff to make bachelor feel unique and to make him feel like a brand new edition of the franchise that's totally welcome and no spoilers please but i hope we see more of them in the future
1: yeah no problem man i won't spoil anything
0: <laughs> i know you got my back but yeah so that's godzilla versus mothra all right, everyone. So, if you're listening, you just heard our thoughts on Godzilla versus Mothra. With the power of quick editing and hindsight, we are going to cut this episode in two because it ended up being a lot longer than we thought it was going to be. So, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are now on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Not Buff Pod or Not Buff Film Buffs. You will find us. Uh, shout out to Josh for setting up that Twitter and Facebook for me. Shout out to Leah for managing our Instagram. My wonderful girlfriend, Leah Willingham. She is hooking us up and helping us out with all sorts of followers over there. And shout out to Matt Williamson, as always, for doing his beautiful artwork. We appreciate and love him deeply. And we will see you guys next time on Escape from Monster Island.